0: Read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to incubatively now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Nick and he was telling me, John, that yeah, he got like five pounds of boar meat from you. Yeah,
1: we were the recipients of a, a large portion of wild boar sausage uh that was hunted by whom i guess we're calling uh, bad mary for the purposes of this podcast and uh (laughs) we have a lot of it still it's pretty good i think it's it's good the the boar you know the thing about this boar sausage so she went hunting this woman
0: bad mary
2: bad mary she's a rich girl who was trying to cosplay as a country person and (laughs) Hmm. she got her neighbor to pity accompany her on a hunting trip
1: Oh, think he was there, I think she hired a guy to take her out.
2: She hired a guy? Yeah, I think she
1: hired, like, a, like a tracker.
2: Insane. But she ended up shooting a boar because she went boar hunting. That's what you're there for. But apparently she cried and just, like, broke down at the sight of meat being alive and then not alive.
0: As is typically what happens when you go hunting. Yes. Yeah.
2: And yeah, so I don't know t- what
0: she thought she was there to do. <laughs> yeah. <but. laughs>
2: she takes it to the processor. And somehow she conveys to him that she wants the entire carcass turned into sausage, including the loin, including all the good parts, just the entire carcass processed into sausages. So that's how we ended up with like 40 pounds of pork
1: sausage. I'm sort of shocked that the processor didn't push back on that uh, just because the sausage, while I think it has a good flavor, it doesn't have the right fat
0: content.
2: I'm not shocked at all. I bet that processor went home and was like, "You wouldn't believe the idiot who came into my work today."
0: Well, I didn't know any of this when Nick fed it to me. <laughs> I just know it was delicious. Yeah, it's got a good, it's got a good flavor, but it should have a much
1: higher fat content so that it's like juicier. To me, it has a tendency to be a little bit dry. Like sometimes my wife Shane will make. I don't know why I'm saying my wife, Shane, we haven't introduced anybody yet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's start there before we, before we continue. This is John Patrick. Some of you might remember him. He was in our right to die episode. And as he has foreshadowed to us, his wife, Shane. Hello. Hello. And as usual, we are also joined by she who has not eaten boar yet. My usual co-host Kelly. And we'll likely probably not ever eat boar if we're being honest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're
2: that
3: attitude. Well, no, I'm, I'm vegan questioning my veganism right now.
0: Oh, well, what were your questions, I'll answer them. I am bacon proselytizing to her throughout various episodes.
3: I'm not going to eat meat. <laughs> I had
0: an ex-girlfriend
1: that when we first started going out, she was a vegetarian and I converted her back by giving her salami kisses. So like I would eat like a little piece of salami. And chew it up. And while I still had salami breath, (laughs) give her a kiss. And she'd be like, oh, that tastes good.
2: This story is repulsive.
1: (laughs) That sounds vile. Well, I was not, I didn't do this on purpose. I was just continuing to eat salami. And then one time we discovered that she liked the flavor of salami on my breath. And, uh, And then things sort of spiraled from there. And she became not a vegetarian.
0: So reintroduce, this is John Patrick and his as of now wife. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: this is not my, my wife is not this is an ex-girlfriend from uh, many years ago many many many
0: years ago I've visited uh for those viewers that haven't listened to our right to die episode John Patrick and I are friends in real life and I've visited him uh, a few times and he typically feeds me and sometimes it it always ends up good I'll start with that but sometimes it sounds a bit weird in the beginning when he tells me what we're about to have that's, that's
1: probably true. And I've added to this by marrying uh, my wife, Shane, who has spent, what did you spend, like 20 years in fine dining?
2: Uh, I spent 20 years in the restaurant industry, a, a good half to two thirds of that in fine dining. It used to be my job to cut pigs' faces
0: off.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We're the kind of people that you could show up to our house unannounced with uh, a dead deer and be like, do you know how to butcher this? And we would be like, yes. And we would get out a, a
0: folding table and some knives and and butcher that deer for you.
2: Spoiler, this actually happened.
0: And uh, Kelly, although not butchering deer, also has a pretty extensive cooking repertoire. Is that fair, Kelly, as a hobbyist?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely as a hobbyist. Never done anything professional. I'm always like fascinated to learn more about cooking, but I cannot read recipes. I hate reading recipes. I feel like, don't tell me what to do. And also I have ADHD, so I don't like reading anything. So most of my cooking has been through observation and experimentation. I end up almost never cooking the same thing twice. And it ends up being a little bit like jazz, a lot of improvisation. It all winds up being a song, but I couldn't like replicate it.
0: My claim to fame when it comes to cooking is putting the exact right amount of cereal in with the exact right amount of milk. And that's about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's people who can't manage that now.
0: Mm. And there's people who put the milk in first, which is just blasphemous.
2: Unacceptable. Uh, Those
1: are probably the same people that like store their milk in a plastic bag instead of a carton. Canadians. Canadians. So so all (laughs) of Canada.
2: (laughs) So we brew mead at home. And the other week I stumbled across a recipe on the Reddit subreddit for mead that was a hibiscus and juniper mead. So I made some and I was worried about how it was going to turn out because juniper is such a very strong flavor. But in this case, uh, it really mellowed out. The honey came out. It was not bitter. It didn't taste like you were eating a pine tree. It wasn't too sour from the hibiscus. It was just kind of perfectly balanced of a little sweet, a little sour, a little bitter. And the character of the honey really came through and it was a phenomenal
1: result. Juniper has sort of been like the sleeper hit of uh, the last couple of years in our culinary explorations.
2: Huge sleeper hit. Yeah. Talk like, about the turkey.
1: You know, yeah. Yeah. So, like a couple of years ago, you bought this book about indigenous foodways, or it's an indigenous cookbook. And... It's called
2: The Sous Chef, but spelled Sue S I O U X, not Sue, like a sous chef at a restaurant. I've heard of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really great book. Every recipe we've tried out of it is incredible. You really had the insight as you were flipping through it. you were like, oh, there's no pepper in any of this. They use juniper instead. And that's been sort of revelatory. Um, we've been doing a maple juniper brined turkey on Thanksgiving for the past couple of years that we then smoke over maple wood chips. And uh, that always comes out pretty delectable.
3: I'm taking mental notes right now.,
1: <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. and then you and then you're making this sort of like maple mustard barbecue sauce that goes all over the 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 turkey. Then you have these beans, and then there's some other side that that usually gets done. Oh, yeah, in there. that was
2: a that was a new invention. That's a combination of the maple juniper flavor profile with like a Carolina gold barbecue sauce.
1: Yeah. so you're doing like some fusion kind of like native food ways combined with. Carolina gold is that that's probably like black folks.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's
1: probably like black folks
2: combined with German settlers combined with
1: German. So there's like a whole, everyone's just represented in this dish that we serve at Thanksgiving.
0: This reminds me of, I don't know if you've watched the show ugly delicious. Yeah. I love this show. It's the kind of conversations they have on that show. Just exploring different types of food, kind of the or uh, origins of those types of foods. And some interesting where you wouldn't expect, but debates behind, not just does pineapple belong on pizza, no. but actually like substantial debates. Uh, we already have a, we already have a no on that one. It
3: doesn't. Yeah. I agreed. I
0: mean, I like a kind of maniac does that.
3: That's basically <laughs> a war crime against Hawaii. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I will say I'm, I'm usually not a fan of it, but every once in a while I get this really weird craving for pepperoni, jalapeno and pineapple specifically that if you want to put fruit on a pizza don't do pineapple
3: do like figs or apples or something or pears
2: i already got fruit on it it's got tomato
3: sauce yeah exactly
1: i, I mean it, i will say that it, i have had a couple of pizzas that had like a figgy kind of thing to it that were not that we're not bad but i would describe that as a flatbread
2: like the ones that come with like Chev and arugula on there. Yeah. Yeah. We make that's that one
1: that, that has Chev, arugula, and then uh, caramelized pears and onions. And that's the little hit it with the balsamic drizzle. That's nice. That's nice. a
3: pineapple though.
1: It's not a pineapple. That's not really a flat bread. So much of it a
3: flatbread. You wouldn't count that as a pizza based on toppings alone?
1: I think that a pizza has to have tomato sauce and mozzarella cheese to be a pizza. And if you try to give me anything else. Than those ingredients, uh, I, I might happily eat it, but that's not a pizza. Like, you just shouldn't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining.
2: Even something as innocuous as something from a major pizza chain, like a garlic chicken situation from a major pizza retailer that comes with a white sauce instead of a red sauce,
3: John dismisses as fitting into the pizza category entirely. Oh, so yeah, what's yeah. The, what's the point of that? What's the point of restricting the definition that much?
1: A spite. <laughs> Are you
3: a Scorpio too?
1: No, I'm not. I'm I'm a Virgo. But I mean, I, I anything you want me to be for the purposes of eating good pizza. But pizza
2: can't be anything you want it to <laughs> no, be. No, pizza
1: what you want it to yeah, be. Pizza is a narrow narrow definition of of what I'll accept as pizza.
0: You know, I was listening to um, that that episode of Ugly Delicious about pizza, and they have this Italian guy on. And at first, my instinct was literally what Kelly just asked: like, who cares? Like, John, get over it. Um, but then. It gets really personal for some people. This guy, his parents owned this pizzeria. Then he took it over. He's put his entire life into making pizza. And I think he has just this sense of ownership of this is my thing. Like, don't mess it up. This
1: is like Drew Morgan's uh, thing about how he's got squirrels living in his tree and their generations go all the way back to the Civil War.
2: This bit is about the idea that squirrels don't move, that they stay in the same very small geographical area forever. So this guy lives in Georgia and he's saying that he has squirrels whose grandpappy squirrels go all the way back to the Civil War that live in his area and that they have their own squirrel food ways. And-
1: but there's like neighborhoods in New York like that about pizza, like for sure. Like that pizzeria has been there for like, you know, since the beginning of of the 20th century
2: well why do i care
1: well that because that's what ownership is ownership is a sense of place and a sense of tradition and i just if, find
2: that i don't need to care about anything that
3: italians think
0: wow <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow for we, our italian listeners let me listeners check out. can direct their comments to add
3: <laughs> indubitably pot on twitter and facebook <laughs>
0: I think there's also a very fine line between um, a sense of ownership. Like, hey, this is something I've dedicated my life to. You should respect sort of my views and expertise around it. This is pizza. This is flatbread, for example. There's a fine line between that and just gatekeeping where it's, hey, this is mine and you can't have it.
2: Well, I think that's where designations of origins come in. AOCs in France or Appalachians or whatever they call them in Italy or California where a thing that's very, very specific and has a long history can only be produced in one place. And if you produce it elsewhere, it has to be called something else, right? The classic example is champagne has to come from the champagne region. Anything else is sparkling wine. There is no pizza region and everything else is sparkling flatbread. If pizza guys want to have a pizza region, I guess they could like ask the government to make them one.
0: There actually is. I think I've got one for you, Shane. There is something like that for pizza. It's the... Check out my Italian. The Associazione Verace <laughs> Pizza Napolitana.
1: You're like Aldo the Apache. Arimadurci. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Leo, let me, let me try that again just in American. It's the Associazione Verace Pizza Napolitana. Anyway, this organization in um, Italy literally sets the standards for what qualifies as a Neapolitan pizza. And if you are in Italy and you don't get certified by this organization you cannot claim to be serving a Neapolitan pizza. And it gets a little bit wild. They literally designate the maximum diameter of the pizza has to be 35 centimeters. The ingredients have to come from the Campania region. The peeled tomato, crushed by hand, doesn't have to look too dense, but chunky. And the uh, extra virgin olive oil is poured in a spiral motion. I mean... This seems a little bit ridiculous to me, but they seem to think it's very important. I
1: wonder what the big difference is there between the the spiral motion and just like a back and forth. I wonder what the, what they think that does.
3: Probably that going back and forth does a doubling up of, of the oil in some places. It's an inconsistent application. I can see the merit in saying a spiral application we preferred, but I do think this is excluding a lot of people maybe can't afford or don't have access to those ingredients. And also it it disincentivizes an innovation.
1: What about people who have like vertigo
0: and just can't handle spirals? That too. (laughs) Well, then they can't be Neapolitan. It just seems very much like I'm imagining this old Italian guy sitting on a throne and anybody that opens a new pizzeria has to come to him and get his approval for them to be able to call it Neapolitan pizza.
1: I think this guy is Little Caesar. (laughs)
0: I don't think little Caesar would qualify under these uh, standards. This reminds me a lot though. You know, modern, modern days is very elitist when it comes to food too. I'm thinking of the Michelin star system, for example, that tells us what food we're supposed to enjoy.
3: The real hilarious part of the Michelin star system, which is highly sought after by like really highbrow restaurants is that it's literally the same company that makes the tires. Did you know that?
0: Is it? I thought it was like the same name, but I didn't think they were related.
3: I believe it was some sort of attempt at making road travel like super fancy mid-century in the 20th century, which was to give these high ratings to restaurants to make them like destination locations.
0: That actually makes a lot of sense because I read um, what the Michelin stars mean. And a single star means, according to the website, a very good restaurant in its category But the second star is literally defined as excellent cooking that's worth a detour. And the third star is defined as exceptional cuisine that is worth a special journey. So that makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, this is because after the creation of the interstate highway system, Michelin, the tire company started publishing travel guides because road trips started becoming a thing. When you think about like Route 66 iconography and stuff, that's when these Michelin guides first started coming out. It was a cool thing for people to do to go on a road trip and see the country and stop places. And the tire company, which was selling people tires so they could go on their road trips, was publishing guides telling you where to stop.
1: I don't, I don't know that anyone should possess that kind of power. I don't, that seems like it's too much power for one organization to just go across the country and be like, "Donated at the rest of these places where people are trying to make a living eat
2: it, that one i kind of agree with you but i also think that i would like to be the pizza king who tells people whether they can or cannot call their pizza by a specific yeah. name
0: john is going to lose his shit when he finds out about things like facebook and amazon
2: <laughs>
0: right <in> yelp these <laughs> have got to go
3: <laughs> yelp especially because yeah. it's the wisdom of the crowd and the crowd is especially stupid
2: <laughs> i have worked at a number of michelin-starred Places which I will not name, but I will say that the place that was the most heavily decorated that had both Michelin stars and James Beard Awards bounced everybody's paychecks repeatedly until they closed. So a Michelin (laughs) star is not indicative of a functioning
0: business. Yeah, maybe you can make good food, but uh, you don't know how to run a business. I actually think that the Michelin star versus Yelp thing is an interesting debate because whether it's food or movies, I'm thinking of uh, Rotten Tomatoes, for example the uh, website, if you don't know what it is, that has expert reviews of movies alongside of audience reviews of movies. I think that's a neat concept. Like, who do we trust? Do we trust the critics or do we trust the public's opinion?
1: Well, I think that depends on, on what kind of a person you are.
0: There's just certain things that you
1: learn through a process of, of either being in an industry and being educated about the industry or going through an educational process that's meant to get you into an industry that causes you to think in certain ways. So, you know, if you are someone who knows what you're supposed to be looking for based on these sort of insider expert opinions, then you're probably going to enjoy those things more.
2: In my experience at work, I've seen this play out exactly as you've mentioned through how people enjoy wine. I went through the initial phases of Sommelier training. I've had to do a lot of wine education for my job. And people who have had a great deal of wine training rate wines that score well among wine experts as good. And people who have not had a great deal of wine training have a very different taste in wine than wine critics have. The average person prefers wines that are simpler and sweeter. And wine critics love things that taste like the smell of goats and turpentine because it's complex. So I think when you're thinking about whether you're going to listen to experts or whether you're Going to listen to the opinion of the common man that probably, like you said, has a lot to do with your level of expertise with the product.
1: Yeah, and and I think this cuts in all directions. By the by, so like for instance, if you were to take someone who's sort of like the foppish upper class, uh, waspy kind of dude, and you know take that guy to a a place like like Mission Ranch,
2: like a boat shoes guy.
1: Yeah, like a boat shoes guy. To a place like Mission Ranch, where they're going to get a, a nice steak and like some traditional food. Maybe they're going to like that high-end stuff a lot. Maybe you could take them to a fancy French restaurant. They would know what to look for there. But if you were to take them to a, a place that would be extolled on diners, drive-ins, and dives, they, they would have no idea how to appreciate that food. But if you took you know someone who comes from the, the Church of Guy Fieri to uh, some of these fancier kinds of places, they would look at that food and be like, this food just, just isn't for
0: me. I went to New York, and I, I probably shouldn't be admitting this, but I was in a situation where I got a basically free meal at Le Bernardin, oh, which nice. is like consistently rated like top five in the world, I think, as far as restaurants go.
2: That's Eric Repair's place, right?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, three-star every year. Uh, and got to admit, the next day when I went to Shake Shack, I was much happier.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that gets to the core of it is that there's not really you have to understand your relationship to those ratings in order to make sense of them. If you don't understand your relationship to the ratings and the people issuing the
0: ratings, then then they're meaningless. Have you have you guys heard the story of the emperor's new clothes? Yes. And so, so far, listeners that might not have heard it, I think that these critics kind of fall into the same category where there's an emperor who loves fine clothes. A tailor comes into his kingdom, says he's going to make him the the finest robes that have ever been seen, makes a big deal about, look how luxurious the cloth is, et cetera, et cetera. And he sells him literally nothing. There is no cloth. There is nothing there. The emperor is naked. And this guy is so proud of his what he thinks is robes, that he has a parade where he's riding down this street and all of the subjects are looking and all the subjects are like, oh my gosh, the robes are amazing. Look how beautiful they are. And then some little kid just says, mommy, why is the emperor naked? And I think it's that same, oh, well, if we're told that it's luxurious, we don't want to be the one that's like, I don't get it. I don't understand what makes this good. We want to kind of fall on that bandwagon of, yeah, of course, this is great. I'm, I'm smart. I'm bougie. I wear boat shoes. I think you
2: see that a lot, uh, especially in like the mid two thousands trends of like deconstructed food or molecular gastronomy, where things are just made fancier and fancier and further and further away from their core components. Like one time, I paid about eight hundred bucks for me and one other person to have a twenty six course tasting menu at a molecular gastronomy restaurant, where they served me teeny tiny tumbleweeds made out of beets, (laughs) among other things. And it was very cool, but it was much more like purchasing art than it was like having a meal.
3: That's what frustrates me about like molecular gastronomy in particular, but kind of the whole complete artistry of food at the expense of, it divorces the purpose of food from the actual dining experience. Geraldine DeReuter, and she was at a restaurant called Bro's Lecce or something like that. Brothers leche, I believe in Italy. And she called it the worst Michelin starred restaurant ever. They went with like eight friends and the the restaurant continually did not acknowledge people's like severe allergies and kept serving people nuts who couldn't eat them and things like that because it was art and it was no longer food at that point, although it was, could still kill people. And they ended up drinking about four bottles of wine and eating about three grams of food over the entire night.
0: I think that brings up an interesting point. if we're talking about food purists or people that think their food is, is has transcended eating and has now become art, what do you guys think about evolution of food? as As things get modern, do they improve? Do they get worse? I mean, obviously, it probably depends on the food.
1: I think that that Shane and I are, are probably in agreement on this, and we're going to say that uh, sometimes they get better and sometimes they don't and i am going to forward the idea that the 20th century was a huge mistake when it comes to foodways uh certainly there were some good things that went on there but the industrialization of food and the convenience model i guess the convenience model of food uh that was no good and uh certainly there's ways to make fast food that's convenient and and tastes delicious i'm not saying that like in and out should go away or things like that but You know, any any sort of recipe that's like mix this can and that box together, and then that's a meal, uh, that has robbed you uh, of a fundamental skill set that human beings have been developing for the entirety of our existence from the time that we discovered fire. And in the 20th century, whole swaths of the human population were, were taught to abandon healthy, traditional approaches to cooking food. Uh, in favor of eating over-sugared, over-salted, over-fatted, disgusting microwave bullshit.
2: I agree with you for the most part. I would think that the evolution of food is like the evolution of a virus, where most mutations are innocuous, some are disastrous, and some are brilliant. But although I do largely agree with you that the industrialization of the food system after World War II has had disastrous health conflicts across the world and has just made people eat gross things like ambrosia salad. There are little pockets here and there of what the food industrialization movement did and that what American expansionism did that actually, I think, benefited people in some ways. Like if you think about how spam is so important to the foodways of the Philippines and Hawaii. Is spam good for anybody? No. Is it culturally important in these areas in the Pacific? Yeah.
1: I think when it comes to something like spam, this is something that I think it's fine to to eat and use sparingly. I I would not throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm I'm thinking more along the lines of the fact that, that people wholesale were sort of convinced to a completely abandon learning how to cook, learning how to feed themselves and, and started to, you know, you have entire families where, where people just don't know how to cook their ancestral meals. They, they don't know how to feed themselves in ways that are healthy. I don't want to throw my mom under the bus here, but my mom is a woman. Darn. I'm going to throw my mom well under the bus here. My, my mom is a woman who just, if it doesn't come out of a box or a can, she doesn't know what
3: to do with it. I think that's a swinging of the pendulum towards extreme convenience away from an excessive expectation of labor, especially upon women when cooking. And I think that we're getting into a point now where we've kind of rebalanced things so that we still have a good deal of convenience foods, but they're higher quality and people are more interested in actually cooking for themselves. So I think that there was a a self-correction that happened after everybody went so full or into the idea of convenience food
0: it got way out of control just way out of control i think there i I have not experienced that self-correction yet (laughs) Just you you could still learn how to cook i'm too old for that now
3: no you're not i've got chipotle
0: i got chipotle and subway i'm good you are going to die (laughs) talking about some of these trends some being good some being bad It reminds me, there was an episode of Hot Ones. It's a YouTube um, interview show, which is pretty amazing. It brings celebrities on to go run a gambit of increasingly spicy hot wings, buffalo wings. And then they're asked questions as this goes. And Gordon Ramsay had one of the best episodes. And they asked him about certain food trends. And I want to ask y'all about the same food trends and get your opinion on them. So one was the spaghetti donut.
3: What the fuck is that? It's a it's a spaghetti that's kind of like a baked spaghetti that's in the form of a donut. Like, you know how they can do oven baked donuts in like a a pan that's formed into that ring shape. It would be taking like cooked spaghetti and baking it again in that shape.
1: It's just ziti baked into a, a shape.
3: Well, I am wholesale
2: anti ziti and anti baked pasta in general because I feel like it ruins the texture. So, although I never had a spaghetti donut, I am unequivocally anti spaghetti donut because there's no way to. Pasta <laughs> yeah. yeah, say was, say goodbye
3: to the al dente factor of the spaghetti, except for the outer crispy edge.
1: Like a lasagna is baked. You don't like a lasagna.
2: A lasagna is in like the bottom tier of my pasta dishes. I love a lasagna.
1: I don't think that I would like a baked spaghetti. I think the noodle, if it's truly a spaghetti noodle, that's a really thin noodle. I feel like baking a really thin noodle is
0: reckless. All right. So John might give a little bit of consideration to spaghetti donut. Hard no from Kelly and Shane. How about the avo latte? It is literally a latte inside of a avocado.
2: Oh, for a second, I thought you were talking about the avocado smoothies that they it's have a, in Brazil, which are good, but this sounds disgusting to me. It's, it's coffee and an avocado?
0: Yeah, they take and they scoop out enough of the avocado that it turns into a cup, a half of an avocado, and you drink your latte out of the avocado.
3: That's an insufficient amount of coffee. Who does this? Gremlins.
0: Oh, great. <laughs> hipsters, John, hipsters. So, so this is a Portland thing? Probably.
3: I don't think I've ever Sorry, actually Kelly. seen it here. I feel like it's more like a SoCal thing from where I've seen it. So so.
0: I just want to point out to our listeners that the the Oregonian is accusing the Californians and vice versa here.
3: We don't have as readily accessible avocados here.
2: I think I think you're right that it is uh, a criminally small amount of coffee. And also, what are you doing with that avocado that you're scooping out? It's not enough avocado and it's not enough coffee. Why wouldn't you just eat an avocado and have a latte
3: in an actual cup that can
1: actually hold water? Is this like a Westwood thing? Is this like a Santa Monica? Because like nobody
0: on the east side of Los Angeles is doing this. Nobody.
3: They're not wasting avocados.
0: The big concern here is just quantity. That's the problem y'all have. You're not this. a
3: coffee person. You aren't, you aren't a coffee person. Well,
0: I'm going to say, so what if you had a really big avocado? You'd be cool with it?
3: There's not an avocado large enough for how much coffee I drink.
1: I can't imagine that it's disgusting in flavor. I mean, I,
3: I don't I think. I mean, you the, eat
2: mole. That's got coffee in it sometimes.
3: It's probably just like an eco-friendly disposable cup.
2: But avocado gets on your fingers. Are you are you drinking it out of the avocado like in the shell?
3: Just the skin. It's just the skin. Like, but the coffee is hot. Doesn't it burn you? To, it, I mean, a, an avocado skin is so thin. It's impractical and insufficient. This is art. I mean, it's
1: art in the same way that the movie Saw is art. The movie That's
3: a good Saw, movie. I might
1: actually
2: <laughs> defend that. Okay,
0: fine. <laughs> like Shane and I are both like, hold on, hold on. It's Okay. How about last one here? Basically gold in anything. I remember going to Vegas and they had the thousand dollar gold Sunday.
2: It has no flavor. I am extremely pro golden food because it's a sick grift to get rich people to give you a ton of money for dog shit.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you're using it to exploit others, but, but if that wasn't the purpose of it, would you have it in food regardless? That's the no, purpose. That would be stupid. It it's doesn't idiotic. taste like
2: anything. But as, as a tool to relieve rich people of their money, it's fantastic.
3: We always had a bo- a bottle of Goldschlager growing up. Were we being swindled? Yes.
2: Goldschlager <laughs> is not that expensive, though. It's not like when you get like a thousand dollar Sunday or whatever with gold leaf all over it.
1: Gold, gold in your food is the culinary equivalent to that app when the iPhone first came out that was just the, it was the app that was called I'm rich and you had to pay like $10,000 for it and it didn't <laughs> do anything. It's just that. You're just just,
0: a flex. It, it's just, yeah. It's just a flex.
2: Yeah. It's like a coach bag.
0: Yeah. You can eat. <laughs> yeah. You can have your coach bag and eat it too. All right. I lied. One last one. This is, I suppose, maybe similar to the spaghetti donut. How do we feel about the sushi croissant?
3: I don't know what that is. It's sushi. The contents of like a sushi roll baked inside of a croissant. I fundamentally disagree with it because one, if you're using any raw fish in your sushi roll and you put it into a croissant, then you're cooking it, which is ruining a lot of sushi grade fish.
1: This isn't like you open a croissant and put raw fish in it. And then you have like a croissant sushi sandwich.
3: No, that's it not is too- baked. And I immediately, the first time I ever saw it, I thought that was disgusting. We have places here, and I'm sure they probably do, down where you are, that do sushi-ritos, which are basically just giant hand rolls. And that's that's one thing. But the croissant actually cooks the contents of that already prepared sushi roll. And I think that's gross. Did, they, did they put the rice in? I don't know. I think it's just the actual, like, the fish and vegetables.
1: How, how do they get off calling it sushi? Because... To be sushi, some sushi that is cooked because there are certain types of fish uh, and sea life that you that you have to treat with heat in order to make them palatable or safe. But like, is this just like it's just like here's spicy tuna baked in a fucking croissant?
3: Yeah, and you you can't call it sushi if you're being technical with all the verbiage like you have been. You can't call it sushi if it doesn't have the rice, right? Because that's the actual well, yeah, the yeah, sushi
0: yeah. component of the sushi. Here's from the website. It says, or from the Business Insider. First, the sushi burrito took over San Francisco. Now, a flaky pastry stuffed with smoked salmon, seaweed, ginger, and wasabi, a quote, sushi croissant, is capturing the hearts of those brave enough to try it. Okay, I'm going
2: to hold you up right there. Stuffed with smoked salmon. As a Jew, I'm saying this is an anti-Semitism and I am offended. If you want to eat smoked salmon and a baked good, that's what the fuck bagels were invented for. All
0: right. So (laughs) apparently this one, we've got some strong feelings about the sushi croissant. Let's take that and move us into the next topic I thought would be interesting here. And that's just fusion food in general. We've got smashing Japanese sushi into a French pastry. What about things like the Kogi taco truck, for example?
1: Well, that's love.
2: The, yeah, that's taco brilliant.
0: Truck.
2: Because it's good. It's not nasty like a sushi croissant.
0: Well, yeah, that's right. I think fusion
1: food is only feasible when you come up with something delicious.
0: And to, to give a little bit of credit here, I think this is where Roy Choi, who is actually one of the producers of Ugly Delicious, the show that we referenced earlier, got to give credit where it's due. Also, genuine good guy. You never hear anything bad about Roy Choi. Mm Yeah, he seems, I mean, watching him on the show, I didn't know much about him except for, I think, John, you and I, when we were in college, we would get on the internet and have to, like, chase this taco truck around. They would just tell us, like, we're going to be in this parking lot. That's all I knew about him until he came out with the show.
1: A couple of times that I went to the truck, he was there just hanging out and, like, talking to people. You know, the story about the Koji taco truck is that when Roy Choi was a kid, he's Korean. And so they would always have Korean leftovers, but he's living in, you know, uh, Los Angeles. And so there was always Korean leftovers and tortillas around. And in the middle of the night, you come home drunk or whatever.
2: Is this how the kimchi quesadilla was born? Yes. That's <laughs> like my favorite thing they it, make. It's so good. It's
1: it's basically like drunk food or high food that you, what, what leftovers do you have? You're hanging out with your buds and you're like, oh, we've got this kimchi. We've got this these tortillas and some cheese, we'll make a kimchi quesadilla. And uh, as it turns out, it's brilliant. Uh, Almost all, I will say this, there's certain types of regional cuisines that, that mash up together nicely because they, they share certain sort of flavor profiles that work well together.
2: And ingredients like lime and cilantro.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like, you can, you can sell me on almost any Asian, uh, South American, Central American fusion. I have never had anything that was in that neighborhood that was out and out bad. I've had some that was better than others, but I've never had anything that I was like, oh, that's vile,
0: but not a fan of the Japanese, French mix up Japanese food and, and French food. I don't think they share a lot of in the venn diagram
2: well the reason that they don't is because that they're they're premised on entirely different ideas of what food should be the classical french cuisine that we're familiar with is all about matching like flavors finding things that are similar in one way or another that that share flavors that go together like think about making a sauce with leeks and lemon juice and white wine and heavy cream like these are all things that that sort of go together And it's all about combining things that share flavors where uh, Japanese food is largely about highlighting the characteristics of individual ingredients and letting them shine on their own. Well,
1: and it's much about texture too.
2: Yes. It's much more about texture and it's much less combinatory and French food is just about how much cream can we feed the King?
1: Yeah. 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 And so these things, they don't, they, they don't, I'm sure there's ways like you, you
2: could. Somebody probably has done it really well.
1: You could convince me that uh some sort of japanese food french food fusion uh has has merit I, I i certainly would not want to go out there and say that these these things should never touch that sounds insane to me but i i think that the oppor- i think the opportunities would be fewer
3: i think the real thing with fusion cuisine is letting it happen kind of organically, finding the things that actually work with each other rather than just trying to like create some sort of freak combination just to get like on the front page of BuzzFeed. You know, yeah. all these like freak combinations that are super out there and edgy just to like have the shock factor and then they close after six months. That's that's not what I would call fusion cuisine, but I think it's what's attempting to do.
0: That's what you're saying, John, with the Kogi taco truck, right? Like these guys, they ate their Korean food they ate their Mexican food. This was what their taste palette was built around. And they were like, all right, let's just eat them both at the same time. Yeah. Cause that was what was on hand. A big thing about foodways is authenticity. You know, anything
1: that smacks of corporatism, people kind of are more inclined to look down upon, you know, like if, if it's something that seems concocted in order to make money rather than something that has been m- made for the purposes of either nourishment or deliciousness or something like that, I, I think it's,
0: it's hard to get behind something that just seems like bullshitty.
2: Just marketed.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think of, we're talking about Asian food mixed with you know, Latin American food. We're talking about Japanese mixed with French. Is, at first I was wondering, okay, what, what gets mixed well with American food? And then that sort of got me wondering, is there even such a thing as American food?
2: Well, yeah, it's the food that people eat in America.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we eat everybody else's food, don't we?
1: Well, no, not really.
2: It Be- changes here.
1: Because, yeah, what we have is sort of like a, a, I think, a, a simulacrum of these other foods.
2: I think that's a little bit selling it short. I think that what we have here is not necessarily a simulacrum but is people adapting to the ingredients that are available for them. Well, yeah. So People come from all different places all over the world and they come to a new place and some ingredients that they are familiar with are available and some are not. And they adapt.
1: Yeah. 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 I agree with that. But I think that the way that we talk about food here where it's like, that's Chinese food. Uh, that's not Chinese food. That's,
2: that's American. That's Chinese
1: American food. Chinese food. And that's, I think a cuisine all its own. Yes. And I think it's a respectable cuisine all its own.
2: Absolutely. So the only cuisine that you would consider to be innately American is Native cuisine?
1: No, that's not American at all, because that predates the idea of America.
2: But what about uh cruel or Cajun food?
1: That well, that so that's that, innately American. It is innately American. Well, is it?
3: It's it's got so many elements brought in from all of the cultures that contributed to it. That's the thing, is 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 American food not just, you know. a a weird interpretation of regional or um, national cuisine, but also taking all those things and hybridizing them and making them into something new.
2: Look, I think if you're going to say that jazz music is American music, you have to say that Creole food is American food. It's a hybridization of a whole bunch of different things coming into play in one place at a time.
1: Sure, except that these sort of like food ways. So jazz is a product of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So that is after America becomes America. But Creole food that is born under a French regime and so it predates America. Now it's food that is a part of America, but is it American? Well, yes, but it's also pre-American.
3: Yeah, the French were already very much established in the in the area before the idea of America was forged.
1: Yeah, so like a California burrito uh, is that American food? I mean, well, what
2: are you going to call it? Are you going to call it Spanish food or well, Mexican food? Well, I will, I would, no, I would well say that California when it got well, I think
3: there's even regional interpretations of ethnic food too. Like there's, there's the California version of Mexican food and then there's all of the Mexican food outside of California too.
1: Well, in the California burrito is a very specific thing that is a more recent invention. So I would say that's solidly Cali- like American Californian food. It's not under the Spanish regime. Uh, But certainly there are uh, dishes in the pockets of uh, San Diego and San Francisco and Los Angeles and other places where the Mexican lineage goes further back than America and the indigenous lineage goes back further than America. And these foods predate America.
2: Okay, so what about foodways in the Northeast that are influenced both by uh, Indigenous foodways as well as settler colonial foodways that absolutely coincide with America becoming a thing? Like Boston brown bread, like clam chowder. Does, does this like baked beans? Do these things to you count as American? What about roast turkey?
1: Well, I I, I suspect that my answer is is that there's that there's really no such thing as American food and that what you really have is just different regional cuisines.
3: This is a question i get stuck on quite a bit too because i i do think that if there is a one true cuisine of america i don't know that we are able to define it because even when if you're looking at indigenous food you're looking at different regional factors. And i come i'm in a region of the united states that i don't believe really has regional cuisine. I think we have some regional ingredients like we're heavily known for berries and salmon and things like that, but there's no like i don't know um Funeral potatoes like they have in Utah here. There's no like Minnesota hot dish or whatever. We don't really have much in the Pacific Northwest that I would consider regional. So I feel like we're probably like the most organically American because like everything is here and none of it is ours.
2: Speaking of funeral potatoes and hot dish, I think if you were to make an argument for there being a universal American cuisine, the most cogent argument you could probably make for it is the cuisine that came out of the Packaged food industry of World War II, yep. Right. The reason why everybody started putting Campbell's soup and everything isn't because everybody forgot how to cook. It's because we created an industry to feed an army fighting Nazis, and then people who own those factories wanted to keep making food in cans. So they but, started. But all those
3: foods are based off of things that are initially given, for the most part, a European origin. Like cream-based soups, that's origin uh, the, the origin of France, and you know, cream sauces there
2: absolutely but those foods percolated throughout all different ethnic groups in America whether or not they originally uh, were were part of the heritage of you know clam chowder i have this cookbook called a date with a dish and it is written by the first editor of ebony magazine who traveled all around the country in the 40s asking home cooks black home cooks what they cooked at home and collecting their recipes and so many of their recipes utilize these convenience ingredients, these packaged ingredients, making casseroles with Campbell's cream of mushroom soup is probably the closest that you get to a universal American cuisine to something that a lot of people all across the country in all different regions were doing and eating at the same time.
3: Are we still doing that now, though? Is that basically diet except for Thanksgiving?
2: <laughs> Not necessarily among younger people. I don't think so. But among older people, Absolutely. I'm a coastal elite and my mother-in-law buys jello and sweet potato and cans that has sugar in it all the time and never a real vegetable.
1: Real, yeah. Never a real vegetable. Uh, you know, I think if you wanted to describe something as American food, uh, the, the, if, if
2: putting sugar in bread,
1: well, no, well, yes, there's that. But I would say that if you want to describe something as American food to, to, to say that there's a cuisine, a cuisine asserts that there is a sort of way of doing things that is emblematic of a people in a region. And if you want to say that the whole country has a cuisine, the only cuisine that I would say is that that is shared by the whole country is a cuisine that is corporatized.
2: Bland and convenient.
3: I would agree with that because I feel like there is too much geographical difference across the United States that makes it that there could be no organically emerging national food. There's just too many differences between what can grow where in this country.
0: But do you think that we're being largely America-centric here? So for example, if if we were Mexican asking this question in Mexico, they might be saying, oh, there is no such thing as Mexican food because there's this regional diversity within the country. But us, us outside of Mexico, we're like, oh, of course there's a Mexican food, right? Do you think that we're just kind of doing ourselves a disservice here and homogenizing ourselves because we're in it?
1: I don't, I don't, I don't think that I would go so far as to say that there is a Mexican food.
2: No, in <laughs> fact, this is something that uh, I have been greatly troubled by since moving to this area. I was like, "Well, what Mexican restaurants are there?" And John's like, "Well, there's this taqueria and that taqueria and the third taqueria and the fourth taqueria and the fifth one. That one sucks. You don't want to go there." And I'm like, "Well, in my old neighborhood, there was a Oaxacan place and a Sinaloan place, and like everybody did different stuff." And I think that. In this country, we have a similar situation in which we have tons and tons of different regional cuisines that are all fantastic and unique for what they are, like real food, like we talked about before from where I used to live in New Orleans, or low country food in the Carolinas, or New Mexican cuisine. We have so many different local food ways. But as for a national cuisine, it's, I think, the only thing that you can really point to because our local food ways are so different is.
0: Lucky Charms. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, Lucky Charms. Lucky, that's Charms. Irish, Josh.
1: <laughs> I, I would say that the representative of American Food Boy is TGI Chili Bee Garden.
2: Yeah. Also, why would you want to have the luck of the Irish? Didn't they have a food famine?
0: That's why Lucky Charms is made out of cardboard and marshmallows.
2: The luck of the Irish, you'll get diabetes.
0: <laughs> so maybe there's no across the nation food, but we definitely have pockets of regional food that say, if you were living in Europe, you could point to and say, oh, that is American, that's from America. I would
1: say that there's stuff that you would say is like native to America. Like that, it comes from America.
2: My friend got this job where she had to, she was a social worker and she had to take a bush plane into these teeny tiny little villages in Alaska that weren't accessible by car. And the food that she got to eat in these Tlingit villages was like amazing. And they had all sorts of stuff that you can't get at a supermarket that is very clearly an indigenous food way. a a kind of ice cream thing. I forget the name of it, but made with um, uh, seal fat and berries and whale meat. And it was very clearly a extremely place-based food culture. And I didn't have any of that food. I just saw all her posts on Instagram, but that made me think that like, this is like clearly a very specific and unpolluted
1: food way. Oh yeah. That's interesting. I, I think that anywhere you go where there's people who have been there for a long time, Generations, and there's been community contact with each other for generations. That you're going to find that there's a way of of doing things,
2: especially the more isolated they are. Yeah, and they'll be people,
1: and they'll be like yeah, like the Gullah, and there will be diversity in in between households. But that diversity is not going to be wild. It's it's going to be oh, I I like to use a little more of this and a little less of that, but it's mostly the same stuff. Or I I leave that one out because I don't like the flavor of that, but the way that it gets cooked, the type of of pots or pans that get used, the the heat application, how long. It's all going to be pretty close. Yeah. When you get off the plane in New Orleans and you get into a cab and you take the cab into the French Quarter to go to your hotel and you step outside, New Orleans smells away. No other city in America smells that way.
2: Especially not when they're having a trash strike.
1: (laughs) Well, yes. Yes. Well, everybody smells away when there's a trash drink. But right, New Orleans smells away. The same is true, I think uh, of of Hawaii. When you get into you get get into the Honolulu airport, you get into a cab, you go out to Waikiki because you're staying in some hotel out there, and you walk down the street, it smells away. But things don't smell that way in California, but in in East Los Angeles, things smell away. And they don't smell the same way that they smell in San Diego. And they don't smell the same way that they smell in uh, San Francisco, but they smell similar enough that you're like, oh, that's all Mexican food.
3: I know I'm home when I smell coffee, (laughs) but uh, yeah, that's not really from here.
1: Coffee is absolutely from the Pacific Northwest for America.
3: Seattle claims a lot of ownership over it. And like there's a, there's an echo of it in, in Portland, but I, I would say that the coffee culture here is so strong. Maybe that is our regional food would be just the like the pervasiveness of how important coffee is here. You don't
0: think the Colombians would have a problem with that?
3: Well, that's the thing is like it didn't it obviously didn't come from here, but could we be so bold as to say that the Northwest perfected it? No, I would think that that would give me a lot of comments.
1: Well, it absolutely would give me a lot of comments. The Italians would be extremely upset with you and it didn't come from there either.
3: I think we've established we don't care what the Italians say. <laughs>
0: All right. I've got a couple more. I think we're coming towards the end here. I've I've got a couple more examples. So coffee, questionable whether Kelly's area of the world has perfected it. Do you think that fortune cookies are American food?
3: 100%. They were invented in San Francisco, right? Yeah. They have an American origin, but like in our cultural consciousness, I don't think that people consider them American. So is it where it was actually literally invented that identifies where the food is?
1: The reason that people consider them American is because people are racist.
3: Yeah,
2: (laughs) I am not a Chinese person, so clearly I do not speak for Chinese people. However, the Chinese people to whom I have spoken about this consider them to be an American invention.
0: How about is pizza American or Italian?
2: It depends on whether it's Neapolitan-style pizza or American-style pizza.
1: Can we, on this pizza issue, just real quick, just to circle back, talk about the abomination that is pizza in my ancestral homeland of Sweden.
3: They put bananas they on put it. bananas on it. Yeah. And and fish often too, right?
1: It is. Yes. It is a whole. I, uh, so I have, I'm
3: I, so. I, I
1: still have family in the old country. I went back there maybe a decade ago to check things out and meet folks. And they took me to a pizza restaurant and oh, I was pizza. like, Oh good pizza. Like, I've been to Europe. I was like, okay, the pizza is going to be a little different here, but I've been to a few different European countries, and the the pizza, while different, usually fine, right? Like, usually, usually not terrible. Sometimes better than others. Not an abomination. Swedish pizza is an abomination,
2: an absolute devil. It is.
1: It is a Lovecraftian nightmare,
2: diabolical food.
0: So pizza. Possibly American, possibly Italian, definitely not Swedish. Definitely not Swedish. Well, pizza's Swedish definitely- pizza is Swedish, but it's not pizza.
2: Oh, see, <laughs> I feel like pizza is a category and different countries have their own different categories. We have separate categories in this country. I think New York pizza is garbage. If you couldn't fold it in half, you didn't use enough dough.
1: I mean, this is, this is, this is fine, but this is, this is where it gets back to my original argument that you have to have some standards for what can be included and what must be excluded in terms of toppings on a pizza. And once you start putting things like bananas and peanut butter, you can take that pizza and throw it directly into the garbage because you haven't even created food at that point.
3: I think we um, very obviously know how John feels about this issue (laughs) to wrap things up. um, Shane, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us?
2: Well, I think that, when you're evaluating whether or not something counts as a cuisine or whether or not it matters for the people who eat it or whether it brings people together, it's pretty, it, it tends to be pretty gatekeepy and pretty reductionist to focus on purity or to focus on Michelin stars or to say that somebody has an absolute say in what is an appropriate way of making something or eating something for somebody else by letting. Things evolve organically by letting people create food and evolve their cuisines organically. I think that you wind up with some pretty amazing things. And the folks who are out here saying that they're the ones who know how to do it right, a lot of the time are just trying to protect their own economic interests. So, as much as I think that putting bananas on pizza is revolting and probably a tool of Satan, I fully appreciate and give all of my support to Sweden for doing so.
1: This is a mistake.
3: (laughs) (laughs) On that note, um, we thank you both so much for joining us today. As usual, I have been Kelly.
0: I have and will continue to be Josh. And uh, since I don't know much about this, instead of giving any thoughts of my own, why don't we finish this episode with the thoughts of Anthony Bourdain, who is obviously much more qualified than potentially any of us on the topic And he says that without experimentation, a willingness to ask questions and try new things, we shall surely become static, repetitive, and moribund.